Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to the fourth of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by the acclaimed Cree writer Thompson Highway. Indigenous mythologies, says Thompson Highway, provide unique, timeless solutions to our modern problems. Within the endless circle of life, the earth is a garden of joy unlimited. And the reason for existence is to have a blast, to laugh ourselves silly. At the centre of that in Indigenous mythology is the figure of the trickster, zany, ridiculous and wise. A bit of a trickster himself. In his Massey lectures, Thompson Highway leads us on an exhilarating exploration of five themes at the centre of the human condition. Language, creation, sex and gender, humour and death. Thompson Highway is a Cree author, playwright, and musician. He wrote the plays The Res Sisters and Dry Lips Autumn Move to Kappa's Casing, the best-selling novel Kiss of the Fur Queen, as well as children's books and a memoir, Permanent Astonishment. This year was the first since the pandemic that we were able to record the Massey Lectures on tour to Fredericton, St. John's, Saskatoon, Vancouver, and Toronto. This is the fourth in the series, recorded at the York Theatre in Vancouver, and it's titled On Sex and Gender. Here's Thompson Hyman. Thank you so much for your wonderful uh, reception. Um, so I will just dive into uh, lecture four. And I was told to behave myself, I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> lecture four, I know I'm really good at misbehaving. Uh, lecture four on sex and gender. <laughs> in the beginning, there were only two human beings in this world, old man coyote and coyote woman. Old man coyote lived on one side of the world, coyote woman on the other. By chance, they met. How strange, said old man coyote, we are exactly alike. Oh, I don't know about that, said Coyote Woman. You're holding a bag. What's inside it? Old Man Coyote reached into his bag and brought out a penis. <laughs> this odd thing. It is indeed an odd thing, said Coyote Woman. It looks funny. What is it for? I don't know, said Old Man Coyote. I don't know what to use it for. What do you have in your bag? Coyote woman dug deep into her bag and came up with a vagina. <laughs> you see, she said, we are not alike. 
We carry different things in our bags. Where should we put them? Ah, getting nervous over there. <laughs> getting excited. I think we should put them into our navels, said Old Man Coyote. The navel seems to be a good place for them. No, I think not, said Coyote Woman. I think we should stick them between our legs. That way they'll be out of the way. <laughs> well, all right, said Old Man Coyote. Let's put them there. They place their things between their legs. You know, said Coyote Woman, it seems to me that the strange thing you have there would fit this odd thing of mine. <laughs> well, you might be right, said Old Man Coyote. Let's find out. He stuck his penis into Coyote Woman's vagina. Mmm, <laughs> that feels good, said Coyote Woman. You are right, said Old Man Coyote. It feels very good indeed. I have never felt this way before. Neither have I, said Coyote Woman. It occurred to me that this might be the way to make other human beings. It would be nice to have company. It certainly would, said Old Man Coyote. Just you and me would become boring. Well, in any case, doing what we just did should result in bringing forth more human beings. What should they be like, said Coyote Woman. Well, I think they should have eyes and a mouth going up and down. No, no, said Coyote Woman. Then they would not be able to see well, and food would dribble out of the lower corners of their mouths. <laughs> Let's have their eyes and their mouth go crosswise. I think the men should order the women around, said Old Man Coyote, and the women should obey them. We'll see about that, <laughs> said Coyote Woman. I think the men should pretend to be in charge and the women should pretend to obey. But in reality, it should be the other way around. <laughs> I can't agree to this, said Old Man Coyote. Why quarrel, said Coyote Woman. Let's just wait and see how it will work out. <laughs> All right, let's wait and see. How should the men live? Oh, the men should hunt, kill buffalo and bears and bring the meat to the women. They should protect the women at all times. Well, that would be dangerous for the men, said Old Man Coyote. A buffalo bull or a bear could kill a man. Is it fair to put the men in such danger? What should the women do in return? Why, let the women do the work, said Coyote Wood. Let them cook, fetch water, and scrape and tan hides with buffalo brands. Let them do all these things while the men take a rest from hunting. Well, then, we agree upon everything, said Old Man Coyote. Then it's settled. Yes said Coyote Woman. Now, why don't you stick that funny thing of yours between my legs again? <laughs> in the beginning, there were only two human beings in this world, Don Regis and Belle Fontaine. At least for each other, they were the world's only human beings. That's how deeply in love they were, or thought they were, when they first met. Short but wiry, Don Vigis hailed from South End, a larger village at the far southern end of Reindeer Lake, where it crosses over into Saskatchewan. He had recently moved the 250 kilometers north to Brochet, Manitoba, to work in construction. Now installed in the Cree Dene village, he lived in a house near Magloal Moura, 
and his wife, Misty Mary, a good kilometer from the company store. Belle Fontaine lived 50 minutes behind that store, which meant she was also mere steps from the company key, where docked all bush planes. By chance one day, Belle Fontaine met the swaggering man with a lantern jaw named Don Weegis at the base of the key there to help unload cargo for the company store. She was there to meet her mother, who was arriving from the hospital in Winnipeg, where she had survived a long bout of tuberculosis. She was 16, he 26. They locked glances, at which point Don Weegis started walking up the hill with Belle Fontaine and her mother to where they lived. By the middle of that summer, Belle Fontaine had fallen in love, or thought she had, with Don Weegis. One August evening, when the moon was at its fullest and a breeze from the south made the verdure sway seductively, they paused for a spell of 15 minutes. Belle Fontaine got pregnant, which spelled the beginning of the end for Belle Fontaine. She of the mane of flowing black hair and twinkling eyes. At age 16, she got married to Don Weegis, and over the course of the next two decades, they had children, and children, and children, and yet more children. Eyewitness accounts from a neighbor exist of Don Weegis running down the hill on which stood their humble little dwelling with crushed to his chest, Belle's most precious belonging, her singer manual sewing machine, an appliance practically impossible to come by in this extremely isolated settlement of 800 souls. She depended on it for her life. She made her children's clothes with it, her husband's, hers. His loot in hand, Don Weegis ran down to the lake shore with his wife in screaming pursuit, pleading with him not to destroy it. When he reached the lake, he threw it in the water where it sank like lead. The canoe sitting unused and empty meters away, Bellefontaine, now Weegis, pushed it off the beach, jumped in, grabbed a paddle, and with strokes most desperate, made her way to the spot where she had last seen her treasure. Her husband waded in after her, scrambled into the vessel, wrestled the paddle from her hands and threw it to the side, grabbed her by the waist, and tossed her overboard. At this point in the canoe's trajectory, the water was beyond her depth, and northerners don't swim. They can't. The climate won't allow it. The summers are too brief, the water too cold, so no one ever learns. Treading water, swallowing liquid in gasps and gulps, and screaming all along like a strangled dog, Belle Fontaine, now Wiggies, grabbed one gunwale of the floundering canoe with both hands and clung to it for her life, begging her husband, please don't do this to me, please don't do this to me. Did he listen? Did he show her pity? No. With every ounce of strength he could muster, he hit her fingers with the paddle, forcing her to release her hold, and she sank. And as she wriggled about like a trout caught on a fisherman's hook, he pushed her deeper into the water with the paddle, trying repeatedly with all his might to drown her. All while their six-year-old girl and four-year-old boy were standing on the beach watching this and howling like puppies. Belle Fontaine somehow managed to save herself that day, or someone saved her. The details are lost in a general convulsion. But throughout that blood-freezing winter, the neighbor who witnessed this obscene perversion of the sacrament of marriage would lie on her belly on the ice and wrapped in parka mitts and toque, inch her way to where she knew the sewing machine lay at lake's bottom, just meters below. The girl cleared the snow with a mitted hand so that, as through a window, 
She could peer through the thick ice to the gleaming black and silver symbol of a marriage from which there was no exit, ever. Not for Belf Wiggies, not for any woman, not in the system known as monotheism. Thompson Highway in Vancouver and the fourth of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures. On the morning of the Vancouver Lecture, I had the opportunity to sit down with Thompson and with two local Indigenous leaders, Harlan Pruden, a two-spirit community activist, and Sasha Mark, a queer Cree Métis comedian. The question on the table was, what do sexual and gender identity mean in the traditions of First Nations people? And what, we wondered, is their actual life experience? Here's an excerpt from that conversation. Harlan, I'd like to start with you, if, if we could, please. You identify as Two-Spirit. What does that actually mean to you? So Two-Spirit, first of all, is a, the way that I understand it, is it's a community organizing tool or strategy and not an identity. It is a way in which that we can identify, organize, and name Indigenous people to Turtle Island who are gender and or sexual minorities or the diversity that existed. Some nations and some people had 12 different genders. Gender is, um, it is your role within society. It's socially defined. And so two-spirit is going to mean something different. And so very simply, men hunted, women gathered, for us as Crees. And so we just had different roles as two-spirit people. And so what we were doing is we provided a mediation role. Men weren't allowed into women's camp. Women weren't allowed to men's camp. Us as a Yaque, we could float back and forth between both camps. And so we just had a different role within society because it's a reminding that we predate Western concepts and notions like lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, that our knowledges come way before that. And we were honored, lifted up, and we had honor, respect, and dignity within our respective nations. Sasha, you identify as queer, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Are you open to talking about what it was like for you, what your family, how open were they to you? Oh, uh, not and, and at your sexuality? all. Not at all. Yes. My role in my family was very mediator-like. You know, I had to teach you know, my family members different things that they were never exposed to. You know, the reality is, is that, yeah, my, my dad is, and to this day, very homophobic and transphobic. And him and I don't have a relationship together. Um, it's, it's, it's gone. And, um, because of your because of, sexuality. Yeah. Because of my sexuality. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I've heard that he's come around to it, but I think for me, it's just, there's, there's so much damage and a lack of accountability in that relationship that I just don't feel like... It's a safe relationship for yep. me. So, um, yeah, uh, my dad grew up in this like weird position. So, um, all his siblings were confused, you know, mm-hmm. being Native, being Catholic, choosing to identify with that identity or choosing to remove it from their lives was a big thing. So, um, my dad was very much a Native man, but like had a very colonial understanding of the world. And, What's it like to be the son of a man like that who reclaims that identity? 100%. It's great. I think I, think I always think about the future. So for me, I think it's, it's, I'm one of the oldest siblings of like my generation or cousins of that generation. So um, for me, um, if they can see somebody who is like queer and very open about it, I think it can provide space for them to be like, 
Sasha's doing it, and I think that's wonderful, and I can do it too. In the beginning, booms like thunder, the monotheistic king of the sky from his elevated perch in swirling clouds. There were only two human beings in this world, a man and a woman. The native trickster, however, is neither, or both at one and the same time. For first and foremost, she, he is a shapeshifter. She, he can change into and be anyone or anything she, he wants at any given point in time. She can be a man, he can be a woman. The absence of gender in Cree facilitates the process. She, he can be an animal, most notably a mangy coyote or a rabbit or a spider. She can be a rock, he can be a piece of wood, a stick. Like Mercury, she, he is difficult to put your finger on, as slippery a character as you are ever likely to meet. In the story that opened this lecture, she, he is both male and female. It comes to us from the Blackfoot nation of southern Alberta, a people much admired for their robust sense of humor. And she appears here in her manifestation as a coyote, or rather a coyote in double exposure, as old man coyote and coyote woman. Imagine the Greek hermaphrodite, double-gendered progeny of the love goddess Aphrodite and the trickster god Hermes, gabbling about in the foothills of southern Alberta at a time long before human beings existed. In Cree, and I would imagine in Blackfoot, the story is knee-slappingly funny. Listening to it, we laugh, and laugh, and laugh, and laugh. We laugh until we cry and our bodies move accordingly. But then we get hit with the English language, and the human body instantly ceases to jiggle. The shoulders droop, the spinal column stiffens, the mouth freezes. And that dreadful angel, the man with wings and a sword of flame, raises his blade, and suddenly the story is no longer funny. It is like watching a punctured balloon go flaccid. Why? Because its subject is sex because its subject is human pleasure. English is a brilliant language, just not when it comes to the description of pleasure. That's not its talent. Yet, one of the greatest privileges of my life has been the opportunity to learn it. For me, it was 18 years of pure hard labor on the one hand, but of love on the other, pure, unconditional, and full-fledged love. I love the Munias. I've been sleeping with one, the same one, for almost four decades. I must love them, hey? I've learned their English language and more. Today I speak four Munias languages and I'm very proud of it. But now that I've mastered English to the point where I can use it to write plays, books, and the lyrics to songs, I love it to shreds. Like all languages, English is inventive and colorful and expressive and powerful and, in the end, fascinating. And what I find most fascinating about it is the way it engages the brain in a manner that none of the other languages that I know does. Science, mathematics, finance, pursuits of the head, gymnastics of the brain, those are its fortes. That's where it thrives. That's where it lives. For me, after having poured through every single word and syllable of its verbal vicundity, I find English to be the world's quintessential language of the intellect. It's brilliant, 
When I need money, I speak English. <laughs> Faster than the speed of sound. I generally get it. When I try to make money in Cree, by comparison, I go hungry. Cree is terrible when it comes to making money. But laughter, hysteria unzippered, unbound, uncorked, that's Cree's genius. However, like all languages, English has its limits. It's Achilles' heel. It's one weakness, it stops at the neck. Anything below it is terra incognita, or at least terra periculosa, which means dangerous in Italian. The heart, the stomach, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, the large intestines, the small intestines, the womb, the prostate, the penis, the vagina, the anus, especially the last three. One doesn't talk about them in polite company. One doesn't talk about them at all. In a word, there is nothing more terrifying to the English language than sex. If I have seen it once, I have seen it twice. I have seen it a hundred times. As a writer in the throes of a public reading in English, I'll be standing on a stage in front of 50, 100, or 500 people, and always the trickster, always the agent provocateur. I would say something as seemingly harmless, as sweetly innocent as the three-letter word that begins with a T. And I will see a flash of pure and utter terror shoot across the surfaces of a thousand eyes at the sound of that word. It's as if the room has just been struck by God, the Almighty Father's golden thunderbolt. For here he comes again, the angel with the sword of flame, swatting the Ochisk of 500 people. Munia's people. Ochisk, a Cree word considered off limits in English. The inoffensive posterior is the closest I can get. My posterior, your posterior, his, her posterior. In one language, harmless enough. In fact, quite chaste, but nowhere near funny. In the other language, hysterical. The syllables alone are like a tickle in the... Well, let's not go there. It's too much fun. Inside the polytheistic and pantheistic superstructures, the words mean pleasure. Ask Aphrodite, ask Wisayachak, the Cree trickster. Inside the monotheistic superstructures, by contrast, the speaker of the words has just set one foot inside the garden, the garden of pleasure, the garden of joy, the garden of beauty that is the human body, below the neck, unclothed and unhidden. The garden of beauty from which we were evicted some 4,000 years ago, supposedly, and at whose gate stands the angel with the flaming sword, a fearsome figure there to swat you on your bum if you dared put one foot back into that garden of pleasure with the word that begins with a T. <laughs> what word could be more filthy, more disgusting, more filled with evil, more expressive of self-hatred, of revulsion at the idea of the garden of pleasure that is the human body in all its glory? Swat? And you're out of there, unsmiling, guilty, red-faced, smarting. To get beyond that fear, that hate, that revulsion, you would have to go to other languages, which is why it has been so important for me to become multilingual, to understand implicitly and explicitly just how functions change 
from one language to another. How language changes the very movements of your body, the way it makes the tension in your shoulders go from rigid to relaxed, which is what sex is for, to relax you. Try it someday. <laughs> Trust me, you'll never give it up. The problem with monotheism is that it not only misunderstands the human body, it also refuses to recognize its existence. It flatly denies biology. It sweeps it under the rug with disastrous consequences. Violence against women being the least of them, child sexual abuse being another. Why so much sexual dysfunction? Why the demonization of a liquid as powerful as semen? as exquisite, as sacred as to give life and form to the almost eight billion human beings that populate this planet today, and give so much pleasure in its distribution. It all has to do with a certain garden. If you're not allowed to go into the garden of beauty that is your body and all the joyful pleasure it holds, if you're not allowed to touch the tree, except with guilt, guilt most twisted, guilt most monstrous, then you get sick, which is what happens when a certain patriarchal institution, a certain monotheistic religion, dictates no sex for its priests. At this point in our study, French, which is a monotheistic language, will replace Greek, which is a polytheistic language, in this way, that's French, if only for this part of my thesis, straddle two mythologies, two superstructures. A European language I speak well enough to negotiate its pleasures, its Gallic munificence, and avoid its pitfalls, French at least springs from Latin. In this way, even if only a small way, can it lay claim to certain fundamental aspects of Latin's polytheistic past. Meaning to say that if English is the quintessential language of the intellect, then French, more so than other Romance languages such as Spanish and Italian, is the quintessential language of the heart and of the stomach. No one, no one revels in the libidinous pleasures of wine, cheese, and pâté de foie gras like the French do. God bless them. <laughs> if English lives so much inside the head that it can't go past the neck to savor the pleasures that lie on the other side of that gate, then French lives, glories, in that region of the body between the neck and the waist. Harkening back again to its polytheistic past, it clings, if with one foot only, to the edges of the garden of pleasure, the garden of joy, the garden of beauty, well lulled with impunity, the goddess Aphrodite, the gods Dionysus, Hermes, Pan, Priapus, and all the other divinities of pleasure, of rabid sensuality. To give the theory an iconoclastic twist, the Romance languages, because of their history, political and otherwise, are Catholic languages, and thus are allowed to sin six days of the week, on Saturday nights in particular, when Dionysus rules and pandemonium lays siege to entire communities, in bars especially, so that his penitents are then liberated to worship God the Father, i.e. Zeus, King of the Sky, on Sunday mornings with their carnal excesses forgiven, washed away like glass that's just been windexed. <laughs> Protestant languages, English, German, and Dutch being just three of several, don't have that privilege. Shackled by their history, when Protestantism broke away from the Catholic Church in the Reformation, 
They are refused entry into that garden by the angel with the sword of flame seven days a week with no respite. They have no confession when sins are forgiven and no communion when they are washed away so that sinning, read, pleasure, can resume its wayward journey if gradually from Monday to Tuesday until coming back to Saturday night, which is why English stops at the neck and goes no further, whereas French can sneak in to engage in acts of pleasure if laced with guilt, such as eating and drinking and making love. Oui, tout à fait, mes chers amis. Les samedis soirs, on fait l'amour. Toujours avec passion. Finally, if English is the quintessential language of the head and French is the quintessential language of the heart and of the stomach, then Cree is the quintessential language of the body. That is to say, uh, that part of the body that is the most ridiculous looking, <laughs> the most clown-like, yet the most pleasurable. You're listening to the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures on Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In the fourth of this year's Massey Lectures, Thompson Highway explores some of the limits monotheism imposes on our understanding of the human body. In the world of Indigenous peoples, Thompson writes, the circle of pantheism has space for any number of genders, an idea with fresh relevance in helping us understand the times we live in. Here's Thompson Highway. Here's another story, a true story about a different but related body part that horrifies in one language but thrills in another. A dear friend of mine had just died, the esteemed director of three plays with which I finally broke into the ranks of professional playwrights in Toronto. So I owed this man a lot. He pulled up roots in Toronto from where he hailed and moved to the island, that is Manitoulin Island on Lake Ontario's Lake Huron. In effect, he moved into my plays living with the rest sisters in all their madness for a decade before he left this mortal coil. I cried and cried, as did everyone who came to his funeral, for he was beloved. He was just 41 when he left us. There was a service at the church down the hill, followed by a burial at the cemetery up the hill and into the forest behind the village, followed by the traditional communal meal Native people generally have at the home of the deceased. The meal was served buffet-style, so everyone had to serve themselves at a big oval table that groaned with food. And everyone was dressed to the nines on this fresh, bright morning in early June. 
The centerpiece of the banquet was a great big beaver that someone had stuffed with nuts and roasted. So here were some 40 people, mostly women, aged 20 to 90, making their way around the buffet table and piling up their plates with salads and casseroles and cheeses, except the circle of women was moving so slowly that there was plenty of time for talk. So is it true, sweetly inquired a swarthy maiden, is it true what they say about beaver? What? asked an older woman on the other side of the table, almost offended, almost defensive. What do they say about beaver? The subtext being, as it always is in any and all indigenous languages, what are they saying about my beaver? <laughs> that young beaver is tender and juicy, replied the young woman with a voice as melodious as a young peepixis, which is a robin. An old beaver is tough and rubbery. Here, for some reason, she gave the older woman an accusatory look. <laughs> as it turned out, the women standing in line on the one side of the table were of the older generation, aged 50 to 90, give or take a decade, while the women on the other side were 16 to 30, in effect, the younger generation. A lively debate ensued about the merits of young beaver compared to those of old beaver. The volume rose, knives were raised, forks were flashed, and fists gesticulated, for the argument was fierce. In fact, there was so much movement at that table that the beaver shook and rattled and rocked and rolled, until finally a 90-year-old woman silenced the Lord by declaring, old beaver may be tough and rubbery, but it's much better than young beaver. Trust me, Mildred, I know whereof I speak. <laughs> These were not leering old men. They were ordinary indigenous women who have a great sense of humor, as does the entire res, as does the entire culture in its near entirety. This is an example of a perfectly ordinary conversation at an indigenous banquet table in modern times. It may be ordinary, yes, and it may be modern, but it is indigenous, meaning that each and every one of its clown-like syllables has the rhythm of the trickster motoring it. The laughter was universal and long and ringing. And this was a funeral, for God's sake. <laughs> a toast was made to the expired animal, even if it, all that was left of its former succulence was its skeleton, its ping-pong paddle tail, and its teeth. For beaver is eaten on reserves with vim and with vigor, and as often as possible. Officer, you would never be caught dead eating beaver young, old, or middle-aged. <laughs> In Vancouver, unthinkable. <laughs> the next feature that distinguishes these three mythologies, one from the other, is the manner in which they view gender. Languages that come from monotheistic systems divide the universe into two genders. In English, there is he and she and her and him and his and hers. But barring exceptions, and strictly speaking, nouns themselves have no gender. Nouns are neither she nor he. They have instead been relegated to a kind of collective non-gender status called neuter. A stone, for example, is an it. A tree is an it. A road is an it. Exceptions are vehicular terms such as boats, 
planes and cars and whales and men and women and the boys and girls and cats and dogs. And there are others, just not that many. Every French noun, by contrast, has to be preceded by either a masculine article, le, or its feminine equivalent, la. There is, however, and strictly speaking, no neuter. That is to say, no such word as it exists in the language. To add insult to injury, most positive ideas are masculine, as in love, l'amour, happiness, le bonheur, and laughter, and rire. And negative ideas are female, as in la tristesse, which is sadness, la douleur, which is pain, and la mort, which is death. So anti-woman is the language that the only way a man can have a feminine identity is to be a victim, une victime, a target, une cible, or a criminal, un criminel. Contrarywise, anything remotely positive on the female corpus is masculine, the vagina being a sterling example. <laughs> In Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese, the organ is as feminine as lipstick. Let me have a look, said a female Brazilian friend in a bar in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, one steamy evening some dozen years ago. Shocked to discover that the French vaginas are masculine, she marched to the washroom, was gone for a spell, and came back beaming. I am happy to announce, she ululated in her sexy, samba-inflected Portuguese, that my vagina is feminine. <laughs> we roundly toasted the star-crossed organ. It's a minefield, this matter of gender. At once sitting in a bistro in Paris, France, or Val d'Or, Quebec, you can eat, in order, an apple, a turnip, a carrot, a cucumber, and a shrimp, and you will have just consumed an object that, in order, is feminine, un pomme, masculine, un navet, feminine, un carotte, masculine, un concombre, and feminine, un crevette. By the end of the meal, your head is spinning and your lower regions are making unseemly noises. <laughs> and your mind is wondering, is meat masculine or is it not? Even if it comes from a steer, it's still feminine. What about a cake? What about a pie? In French, a cake is masculine, but a pie is feminine. Yet the eight items of food just listed are all just that, items of food. We'll go one step deeper. The language of monotheistic mythology positioned all nouns according to a hierarchy of power represented by a straight line standing vertical. At the very summit of that hierarchy sits God as male with an uppercase M. One step down comes man with a lowercase m. Next comes woman with a lowercase f. And last comes nature, which has neither upper or lowercase for m or f, but is neuter. That is to say, nature has no gender. The design of the structure is phallic, that is, a straight line standing up. And in this phallic construction, man has total and complete power over woman. To give it a biblical spin, she is nothing but the rib bone of her husband, a stick of furniture in his house. And both genders have complete power over nature. There is, moreover, room on that straight line for two genders only, male and female, and never the twain shall meet. Anyone who dares cross that gender divide pays dearly for it, 
Millions have died grotesque and horrifying deaths for engaging in such an act. In many regions of the world, they are still hunted down like animals. Finally, where on that phallic straight line is the female with an uppercase F? The answer is nowhere. This concept simply does not exist. That's how absent the female principle is from monotheism. That's how patriarchal the system is. Thompson Highway and the fourth of the CBC Massey Lectures, recorded in Vancouver. Here's another excerpt from the conversation we recorded with Harlan Pruden and Sasha Mark about sexual identity and gender in the Indigenous community. Another stereotype that Thompson thinks we in the media help maintain, and that is that we reduce Indigenous people and their experiences to simply being victims. So can you tell me in your own words just how amazing it is to be Indigenous and queer? Well, first of all, I just want to say, we're not supposed to be here. Sasha, Thompson, myself. If the colonial project was to succeed, y'all would be living on this land without any physical markers that you are on our land. We are not supposed to be here. If the colonial project was to have succeeded. And I know that people, there is this victim narrative that plays out. You pick up any policy paper. You pick up any research product. White people are always the control. And so we're always going to have like greaterly impacted by HIV, <laughs> lesser social determinants of health. Because white people are the control. That we're, there's a measuring stick, right? The Two-Spirit Dry Lab, we challenge that, right? And so for us, since 1491, we've been bucking against this. Every breath I take is an act of survival. Every exhale is an act of resistance. Us simply breathing makes us activists. And is a reminder of a system that predates your system by a millennium. And it is a system that is based on honesty, truth, courage, love, humility, respect. We know our strength because we're here today. And 531 years of colonization, and we are here to sing our stories, to sing our songs, to say we know we're here. Breathing makes us activists. Sasha. Yeah, for me, I always say the one that we get cast, you know, the horror movie we get casted in the most is like the news, you know, like it's, it's the story where we, it's trauma porn is like what a lot of mainstream media has fed viewers. But like outside of that, I love being indigenous and queer. You know, there's so much laughter. There's so much kindness. There's so much generosity. There's so many brave people. There's stories of resilience and power. And I feel like those stories are missing. There's stories that still haven't been told. And there's beautiful stories that we're just not even aware of. And it's a shame. It's a shame. But uh, y'all are missing out. Y'all are missing out. <laughs> <laughs> If the monotheistic system of thought delineates a straight line standing vertical, then the polytheistic system delineates a semicircle, a curve of sorts. Ancient Greek has genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter, but there is no hierarchy. 
All gods and goddesses in the pantheon of 12 sit at the same debating half table at a level that is equal. Chairing duties will be shared by Father Sky Zeus and his wife Mother Earth Hera. And the other 10 deities, five female, five male, would have an equal voice at the meeting because not one among them is sitting higher than the other. Fittingly, it was a more democratic system, one where women actually had a voice and homosexuality was practiced openly. If there is room for two genders only on a straight line of monotheism and three genders on a semicircle of polytheism, then the circle of pantheism has space for any number of genders. The monotheistic world of two genders is black and white, but the whole world cries out for color, and we two spirits bring that color, which is why we fly the rainbow flag. I like to put it this way. Without this gender, this magic gender, what would Cher have to wear? (laughs) There is nothing, nothing more exciting, more spectacular than a two-spirit party. And there is nothing more exciting, more passionate, more fulfilling than a friendship between a heterosexual woman and a two-spirit man. Heterosexual men and women too rarely speak the same emotional language. Gay men and straight women do, and they do with an emotional fire and electricity that makes them the best friends in the world. Countless times have I seen on a city bus, on the subway, on the street, a lonely old woman who would otherwise be dying in a loveless and only too frequently abusive marriage, laughing uproariously with one of those queenly, totally effeminate men who would have been killed a long time ago by gay bashers. Two total rejects from a monotheistic society, having the time of their lives is liberation, all-out happiness. The love between them is palpable. Whether they came into this world, male or female, biologically, they are people who have the souls of both genders at one and the same time. In English and related monotheistic languages, such people have ugly, derogatory, exclusionary names filled with hatred. They are considered people who should best be exterminated as quickly as possible. Instead, two spirits sit with honor on the second and fourth sides of the all-encompassing circle of pantheism and so must serve a useful purpose. If they can't, for example, hunt or give birth in the traditional ways, then their role is to care for the spiritual life of the community. They are the shamans and priests of the community and the artists and the visionaries. That's the job of a real true spirit a holy person born into this world with the souls of both male and female and who is thus frequently the wielder of magic powers available in no other way. Every family should be so blessed as to have at least one such person. Last, two spirits act as a buffer between the two eternally warring opposing genders of heterosexual male and heterosexual female that make for a world that is not only boring, but lethally dangerous for gays and women. If women stand to get raped just by walking down the street, then two-spirit people stand to get killed and do. My own life 
has been threatened three times already, once by a beating by four gay bashers in a poorly lit, isolated parking lot behind the Manitoba legislature in Winnipeg, once by a van that tried to run me over, and once by attempted arson while I was scrawling out longhand, late at night, an early draft of, of a play that would come to be known as the Red Sisters. Within the full circle of indigenous mythology, the universe is not divided in that, into that which is male, female, and neuter, but according to that which is animate and that which is inanimate, that which has a soul and that which has not. According to the system, woman has a soul, as does a man, as does a bear, as does a cow, as does a tree, as does a rock, the defining article being anna. And so you have anna isquio, the woman, anna apio, the man, Anamasqua, the bear. Anamostos, cow. Anasiti, the tree. Anasini, the rock. They are all animate. They all have souls. And there is most explicitly no hierarchy, no straight line, no phallic design. There is instead a full circle, a yonic design. Yonic, a word from Sanskrit, the sacred language of Hindu philosophy, and of the historical texts of Buddhism. It means vagina-like. All these animate beings sit on one side of the circular debating table, and because they all, as with the Greek gods and goddesses, sit at the same level, they have an equal voice in the discussion. At this table, a woman is most assuredly not the rib bone of her husband. In fact, if anyone is a rib bone of anyone, it is the husband <laughs> of his wife. The only way to remove the soul from these beings is to kill them, at which point the defining article becomes anima. Both men and women become anima miau, the corpse. The bear becomes anima anaskan, the carpet. The cow becomes anima wias, the meat. The tree becomes anima titapuin, a chair. That is, a chair is a tree with a soul removed and the rock becomes anima miskano, a sidewalk. When you apply this equation to the various parts of the human body individually, you find very quickly that each and every one of them has no soul. They are all inanimate, mere lifeless objects. Anima mistiguan, the head. Anima michiichi, the hand. Anima misit, the foot. Anima watte, the stomach. Anima miti, the heart. They all have no soul, no spirit. Even the penis by itself has no soul. The testicles do, however, but that's because the key word for them is asiniac, which means the rocks. <laughs> the only two parts of the human body that by themselves have a soul are the womb and the vagina. And there lies the seed of the idea that divinity is female, that idea lies at the very core of our languages and thus our mythological superstructure. That's where lies the seed of the idea of matriarchy. That's where exists and exists most vividly the uppercase F of female. Right smack dab at the heart of that circle, that womb, that garden of beauty. Oh, pardon me. There is one more organ that by itself has a soul. It is uncomfortable to explain in English, but I'll give you four hints. One, both male and female bodies have it. Two, 
It is the most ridiculous looking part of the human body, yet the most amusing, the most pleasurable. Three, it makes great music. Four, in the West today, we're bearing witness to a rising epidemic of a fatal ailment, a crucial factor for which might be the act of, well, flatulence, or the suppression thereof. Still don't get it? It's a place where rules supreme. We Chuck and his army of tricksters. Kiputsim, we call it. Try saying the word in a mirror, or in front of your lover, or to yourself, as you fall asleep at night. <laughs> Kiputsim. It has the same rhythm as chickaboom. <laughs> the syllables alone will make you chortle yourself to sleep. You will sleep twice as well and feel all the better the next day. So let her rip. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to On Sex and Gender, the fourth of the 2022 CBC Massey Lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions by Thompson Highway. Also on the program, Harlan Pruden, a two-spirit community activist, and Sasha Mark, a queer Cree Métis comedian. Our thanks to both of them. A longer version of the conversation, which included Thompson, will be broadcast on Ideas this coming Monday. The entire lecture series will be available on our website, cbc.ca slash Masseys. And you can also download the podcast from our podcast page. Your local bookseller will have the book version of the lectures, Laughing with the Trickster on Sex, Death and Accordions, published by House of Anansi Press. That music you're listening to, by the way, is written by Thompson Highway. It's from his latest album, Cree Country, which, as the title suggests, is a collection of country music-styled songs sung in Cree by Patricia Cano. Our partners in the Massey Lecture Series are Massey College at the University of Toronto and House of Anansi Press. The Massey Lecture Series is produced by Philip Coulter. Online production by Althea Madison, Ben Shannon, Sinisha Jolich, and Paul Gorbold. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of the Massey Lectures and Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayand. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.